All right, if you found Mark chapter 10, verse 17, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Mark, 17, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God. Not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last shall be first. Join me as we pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for, in the name of Jesus, I pray for hope and healing and strengthening and reviving. God, we pray that the joy of the Lord would return. Lord, I pray that there would be a new awakening to the Spirit's power, a new love for your word. God, I pray for every, every man or woman that's been trying so hard to be good without falling into the freedom and the grace you've given us in Christ. So Lord, would you do your work now by your spirit, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Henry VIII was the most infamous ruler that England ever had. 
He was not supposed to be king, though. He had an older brother named Arthur. Henry VII named his oldest son Arthur after King Arthur, who fought the Anglo-Saxons, trying to give some legitimacy to the Tudor dynasty. Arthur was a young man when he married the formidable Spanish princess named Catherine. Brought the two together, England and Spain, because England needed the legitimacy that Spain could provide, and Catherine became part of a political marriage. Soon after they were married, Arthur was just 15 years old. Soon after they were married, Arthur contracted some illness and died. That's why it's always been said in England, if you or a king, you need to make sure that you have more than one child. You need an heir and a spare. That's what Henry was, the spare. Never thought he'd be king, but all of a sudden it is thrust on him, and they asked the pope, because they needed the allegiance of Spain, asked the pope to give a special dispensation so that he could now marry his brother's widow named Catherine. The pope allowed it. They got married and began the dynasty the Tudor dynasty, all except for Henry's propensity to have a wicked, wondering eye. He would see a pretty woman, he would be distracted and was distracted very often, ended up marrying six times. Only three of those wives lived through the marriage. He had a way of cutting their heads off. Henry would be named the defender of the faith by the Pope. Henry wrote a long letter to Martin Luther when Martin Luther was starting the Protestant Reformation and Henry wrote how terrible it was and the Pope called him the defender of the faith and it has lasted for the English crown even up to this day. But to get a divorce, he needed the Pope to give him another special dispensation and the Pope would not grant it, and so Henry VIII started his own church called the Anglican Church, here in America called the Episcopal Church. He would inadvertently found the Anglican Church. He would eventually create the Tudor dynasty and set England on a path for success. He would establish a kingdom of his own, but miss the kingdom of God. And any way you cut it, when you think about Henry VIII, he was a rich, young ruler. He had everything you'd ever want and missed eternity. Much like the young man in this passage. The young man that we call the rich, young ruler. That title, Rich Young Ruler, is actually a composite title. We've sort of put it together because we read the Gospels and saw it and heard it in church. Matthew's the one that tells us he's a young man. Luke's the one that tells us he is a ruler. And Mark, right here, tells us he is a rich man, the rich young ruler. But in spite of his riches, in spite of his youth, in spite of his position, in spite of his power... There was something wrong with him. Something in his soul. Something he was not satisfied with. So he runs to Jesus. He's looking for some sort of internal confidence to match the external security. 
And from this sad story, we learn that God cannot be bought by a successful, good life. But he can be known by the gift of grace found in Christ. When this sermon is done, what I, what I hope, kind of where I'm going to go, when this sermon is done, I want you to see that in Christ, in Christ, God loves us with impossible grace. In Christ, God loves you with impossible grace. You've already seen it. It's a long story. It's broken up into three sections. Those three sections will give us the point. So let me just give you the sections from verse 17 to verse 22 is the event. The rich young man running up to Jesus. There's an event that happens. From verse 23 to verse 27, what you have is Jesus now taking the event and teaching from the event. And then after verse 27, you got verse 28 to 31. You have Peter scratching his head. He said, well, what about us? And then you have the promise that Jesus gives. So the event, the lesson, and the promise. Let's go to the event. Here's the first point. Number one, being good is not good enough. One of the first lessons of Christianity is being good is not good enough. Oftentimes, those that are one step removed from Christianity, when they think of Christianity, they think that what we're saying is that your life is like a scale. And if you can accrue doing more good things in life than you do bad things in life, and it outweighs the bad you did when you get to heaven, God sees your scale, you are more good than you were bad, he's going to let you in. And this passage tells us being good, not good enough. Let's go to the scene, verse 17. You notice how it opens up in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus, as Jesus is on a journey, where is he heading? He is going to Jerusalem. In, Jeru in Jerusalem, he will be crucified for the sins that you and I commit, our sinful life. He will be buried and God will raise him from the dead. There he will secure our redemption. That is where he is headed. And as he starts out on his journey, verse 17, something unexpected happened. When, when Matthew wrote about this, Matthew says, behold, like this, we didn't see this coming. Something completely unexpected happens. And notice this young man running up to him in verse 17. In fact, we should back up and say, this young man running. Mark tells us that he ran up to him. Nobody ran. Little boys ran, little girls ran. You became a man after bar mitzvah, you didn't run anymore. It was considered disrespectful, especially if you were a rich man. You've got stature. We find out from Luke, he's a ruler. He has some position in, of authority. He didn't run to people. They ran to him. Not in this passage. He ran. And we find that when he gets there, verse 17, he ran and then he knelt down. Do you see that? Nobody kneels down like that. He knelt down like a beggar. He, he knelt down like a leper. Like a supplicant. He, he knelt down like somebody in desperate need. Here is this young man. He is riddled with some sort of sincere anxiety. Some kind of... Some kind of concern? I mean, even after all of his success at such an early age, something's not right. Something's empty. 
I mean, we're going we're gonna to hear all he says. And he's a remarkable young man. He believes in God. He is moral. He's kneeling there. He's humble. He's sincere. I mean, these are all really good qualities. In fact, when you look at verse 17, he is asking the right question the wrong way. The right question the wrong way. This is what he says in verse 17. Good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Teacher, I'm a doer. If there's a hurdle in front of me, I jump over it. I'm a fixer. I've done all of this. You can see the trappings that I'm carrying. I didn't get to this position by just coasting. I am a doer. What must I do? I'm all about self-improvement. I want to set goals. I want to set those goals out there. I want to work toward those goals. I want to get better. I want to achieve. I have achieved a lot, but there's something aching. So can you tell me, teacher, what do I need to do? Just tell me and I'll do it. An achiever. Watching uh, documentaries... This week, Connie, Connie's off seeing her mom and dad in Mississippi. And when Connie is gone, I have a f- full control of what's on television. It's a joint kingdom when she's here, so I usually will acquiesce and we'll watch whatever. But, but I am here, I have full, it's a dictatorship when she's gone. So I'm watching all the documentaries and all, ran out of World War II documentaries, and I came upon a documentary about NASCAR. I had not seen, it's brand new. And a couple of things, there's six episodes, a couple of things. One is I didn't know they cussed so much at NASCAR. I guess it makes sense, but they cuss a whole lot. And the second thing is the, the, the drivers, they're, they're young, they're wealthy, they've made a lot of money, they worked hard to get it. And every time you interview the driver, they were just talking about, even if they lost the race, we, that is going to make us better. People insult, make us better. We are achieving, we're, we're moving forward, we're growing. This is the kind of young man that's fallen down in front of Jesus and said, what do I need to do? And we've been going through Mark for a year and a half now, or a little over a year now. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We have never seen anybody like this in front of Jesus. This young man had such promise, had such potential. Usually the people with power, they come to Jesus, they're wanting to pick a fight with him. They're always trying to argue with him. Or, or the other people are those that are hurting and suffering and need Jesus to do something. Here comes this professional young man. He's got everything you could ever want. And he falls down in front of Jesus. Something's missing. There's something dogging him. Maybe it's unsatisfied guilt. Maybe it's unfulfilled longing. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, something nagging. There's this doubt about his relationship with God. So he asked, what do I need to do? Please tell me. Verse 18, Jesus. Jesus, oddly, he doesn't coddle the young man. He's been coddled his whole life. He's been told his entire life, look, you've got such great potential. You're going to do great things. You are a winner. We believe in you. And it gets to Jesus Ask the question, because of my emptiness, what do I do? And Jesus addresses the root of his problem in verse 18. Join me there. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
And this is not Jesus saying that he is not God. This is not Jesus saying to him, don't you know that I am God? This is Jesus addressing his problem. Why do you use the word good? Let me give you a little education right here. Verse 18. Nobody's good. You don't understand good. Only God is good. Jesus now starts to bore down and call attention to his superficial understanding of what good is. We do this all the time. We use it in all kinds of ways to provide excuses for bad people. So we'll say he's basically, he's basically a good guy. He made some bad decisions. I mean, I know that he did all that, but actually he, he's got a good, there's a good heart in there somewhere. He's, he's got a good heart, he's just been with the wrong crowd. That, that's our understanding of good. And, it, and in this passage, in this shockingly sh short statement, Jesus is teaching him something he has not heard before. Morally, you think you've done good, but you're bankrupt. This is what, um, this is what Paul taught us in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, Paul quotes the Psalms and Isaiah. And so he takes the whole Bible, brings it to us, and he says that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Or as Jesus said it here, no one is good but God. Now, before we can understand the gift of God's grace, before we can actually grasp the gospel and understand what it means to be a Christian, we, we, need, to, we need to see the, the cavernous hole of our need in our hearts. Let's walk, through, uh, let's walk through what Jesus says to this humble, self-righteous man. Join me there in verse 19 and 20. Jesus starts with the commandments. Verse 19 and 20. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. It's not technically a commandment. It's probably based on do not covet, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. So Jesus walks him over. If you saw the Ten Commandments, five on one side, five on the other. Jesus walks him over to the Ten Commandments, and he lists the commandments that have to do with relationships. And he says, all of these commandments. And because he is a really nice guy, in fact, he says in verse 20, I've been doing this my whole life. My mom and dad raised me right. I use good manners. I honor people. I've never killed anybody. I've done all of those, verse 20. I've done everything you said I should do. He's a nice guy. Honestly, if this guy shows up at your daughter's house, you want him. You are doing all you can to make sure that she's nice to him so they'll go out again. He is a really nice guy. He is respectful. He's got a great job. Wonder what he's making. He's got a great job. This is the young man. He is everything you want in a young man. In fact, he knows that. I've done all of that. They stand there looking at those Ten Commandments, at those five commandments. Jesus then gets to the heart of the issue. Verse 21, read it. Verse 21, you've got an idol. This is not Jesus saying you shouldn't have money. He's saying this young man made it an idol. Join me there. Verse 21. 
Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Before I get to the other, let me just stop there. Just look at that. Just look at that. Jesus looked at this young man, loved him. This is before he gave his life to Christ. In fact, we know he's going to walk away. Jesus loved him. Here is the compassion of Jesus for sinners. Here's the love of Jesus for sinners. Jesus looked at him, loved him. Now follow verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him, and he loved him enough to tell him the truth. <clears throat> Don't be duped into believing that if you love people, you must accept them the way they are. And if you don't accept the lifestyle, then you don't actually love them. That is not what Jesus did. The text says in verse 21, he looked at that young man, he loved him, and then he told him the truth. You can do it lovingly, you do it kindly, you can do it with humility. Verse 21, Jesus said, looking at him and loved him, Jesus said to him, you, you lack one thing. So here's the one, you've got an idol that you're worshiping, that you've given your life to. You lack one thing. Go now and sell all that you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven where you can't see it and spend it, can't get to it. You'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. R.C. Sproul, the great uh, Presbyterian preacher and teacher, he looked at this passage here and said, here's what, here's what Jesus did. He took the young man to the relational part of the Ten Commandments, and that young man was confident he had kept all of those, although he must have not heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then Jesus took him over to the other side of the commandments that have to do with serving God and pointed out to him, you shall have no other gods before me. What does Jesus do with us? He gets to the heart of the issue. And here in verse 21, at the end of exposing this young man's problem, he came asking what my problem is. Jesus said, I'll tell you what your problem is. You're, you're, you're hiding behind this cloak of self-righteousness. You're, you're hiding behind this cloak of really respectable, good behavior. But underneath, you've got an idol you're worshiping. And Jesus, at the end of verse 21, invites him to change the entire course of his life. To do something completely contrary to the direction of his entire life. It is the supreme glorious test. Jesus says, drop the crutches. Drop the crutches. And trust me. Turn your eyes of, away from depending on something else and trust me. Verse 22, verse 22, it, it stuns the young man. In fact, we've never seen anybody react like this to Jesus. Let me read it to you, verse 22. Disheartened, the Greek says, his face dropped, face fell. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he couldn't let go of his God. He had great possessions. This is the only person that's ever come up to Jesus asking for help, standing there, that walks away disappointed in the whole Bible. This is the only time it ever happens. He walked away sad. But he still walked away. 
Being sorrowful is not the same as repentance. He was sad, but he wasn't wrecked. He took hold. He's going to rely on his own goodness. And according to Jesus, being good, it's not good enough. That's why we explain the gospel. That's why we teach the gospel. That's why we need the gospel. The gospel tells us, simply put, that God in his goodness created us in his image. The image of God in you is disfigured by your own sin. That sin is a crime against God, and you deserve condemnation. That's where we come into this world under that, under condemnation. No matter how good we act, we never get rid of the condemnation on the inside. This young man had condemnation. That was his problem. But that's not the way God leaves us. Because God loves us. In fact, Jesus loved this man. God in his goodness sent Jesus to live perfectly as the God-man. Fully God and fully man. He lived perfectly for us. That, that's important for our salvation. He lived the life we can't and don't live. He earned righteousness as a man. He was already holy because he is also God. But he earned righteousness as a man. At the cross is where the divine exchange, we sang it this morning. At the cross, Christ takes your sin and the wrath of God for it, gives us his righteousness so that you don't depend on your righteousness. It's good that you look at the Ten Commandments and seek to follow them. They are there for that. They also remind us that we can't and we need the perfection that Jesus gives. So get rid of the guilt trip of trying to earn the favor of God and put on the righteousness of Christ that comes in grace. It's the gospel. Why? Because being good is not good enough. Let me give you a second point. Okay, that's the event. Let's go to the teaching. What did Jesus teach? Here's the second point, number two. God's grace is more than enough. God's grace is more than than enough. Let's pick up the speed just a little bit. We'll turn our attention to the lesson as Jesus teaches it in verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus says how hard it is for those that have things. He didn't say it's bad to have things, it's just hard. Jesus looked around and he said to the disciples, how difficult it'll be for those that have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they are distractions. If you got things, you're distracted by them. They eat up your time and your effort and your thoughts. They're distractions, or if you have enough money, you can feel independent. You can feel like you don't actually need God to provide. Or if you have things, money, it can start to dominate who you are. And Jesus says in verse 23, you guys need to see, disciples, that it is really hard if you've got a lot of money to get over those hurdles. Well, verse 24, they've never heard anything like that. Verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Now, wait a second. The disciples, they came up with a Jewish Deuteronomic mindset that said, if you are doing well, God will bless you. If you are not being blessed, then God doesn't love you. And, and it's this strange, the disciples before the cross would have been great prosperity preachers. It would have been great. I tell you, look, if you were just live right, pray enough, God's going to bless you. And if you're not being blessed materially and financially, then he must not love you. And so they are, verse 24, they're listening to this and they are astounded. Verse 25, he hits them with a great metaphor. Verse 26, they're dumbstruck. They're like, who can be saved? 
Verse 25, don't, uh, don't rob verse 25 of its colorful punch. Verse 25, let me read it. <clears throat> Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So oftentimes this has been understood that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle that was low. And when a camel came to it, a camel had to get on its knees and to go through the gate. So that, that was traced back. You've done research. It stops about the 11th century. Somebody made that up in the 11th century. That's not what this means. This is Jesus giving this unbelievable, impossible reality. He says it is easier for the biggest animal you can think of, a camel, to go through the smallest hole you can come up with, the eye of a needle. It is easier to make that happen than to get a rich man into the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. And verse 26, the disciples are like, well, then who? That wrecks their theology. Who can be saved then? Verse 27 is the clinch. Verse 27. Verse 27 is the key to the entire passage. It's the whole point of the whole passage in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, you're getting it now. You're getting it. With man, this is what I've been trying to teach you. With man, it is impossible. But not with God. With God, he gets the camel and puts it through the eye of the needle. With God, all things are possible. With God. Do you see how he's unfolded now, taken away, you working for the pleasure of God, you working to get God to love you, you working, thinking that's going to get you into heaven. This rich man that had everything, the great looks, he was young, he had money, he had power, he won't get in because he couldn't come to Christ. What is salvation? What do we mean by the kingdom of God? It is a work of God. It is a gift of God. It is the grace of God that only God can save but God can save. The kingdom of God or eternal life or becoming a Christian or in our vernacular, being saved. How do you get in? I characterize it like this. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is, is, is received as a gift. It is entered through faith. It is seen or displayed in your life. The kingdom of God, it is received as a gift, that is grace. Jesus Christ lived perfectly, died on the cross in your place. God raised him from the dead. He gives that to us. Redemption is given. Righteousness given. It is received as grace. It is entered into through faith. Christ, in real time, lived, died, was raised from the dead. How that applies to you is when you appropriate that, you you take that in faith. You believe and you trust your whole life. How do you know it works? It is displayed. The third thing. It's shown, it's seen in a life lived for God. And what this passage is telling us is that in Christ, God has loved us with an impossible grace. The truth is being good is not good enough. Christ, only Christ is good enough. That God's grace is more than enough. 
that God's grace in Christ covers all of your sin, washes you all of your sin, every one you could think of. So the event has happened. Jesus teaches the lesson, and Peter is scratching his head. Gives him my third point, number three, and I'll close with this one. God's provision is always enough. God always provides. Peter speaks up, verse 28, he says, okay, look, I'm, if he didn't make it, verse 28, Peter began to say to him, so look, let me just kind of tell you where we are. We've left everything to follow you. Are we okay? And in verse 29 and 30, it's, an ex, it's the most expansive promise you ever hear come here in, in, in the gospel of Mark. There are, there are fewer, wider promises. So Jesus addresses it, and here's what he says. I know, you've, I know you've walked away from things. I know that you've left some things. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left a house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospel. He equates himself with the gospel. I am the gospel. You've left all of that for my sake and the gospel. Here's the promise, verse 30. I promise you a hundred times better. Not just in eternity. Verse 30 says, a hundredfold. You're going to be provided for. God provides for his children in Christ, provided for. You're going to be provided for. You can see the promises in verse 30. If you had to break some family relationships and your parents turned away from you because you came to Christ, you have a child that has rejected Christ. Jesus says there's a greater family. There's a greater family than the blood family. There is a family that's built on the blood of Jesus. It's the fellowship of believers that come together. I'm going to provide you with a better family. Better than what you had. They're going to love you more than those that loved you. They're going to support you. In fact, Jesus uh, says that I'll give you a place to stay, land, family. A family is the church. And you'll notice in verse 30, and persecutions. That's only in the gospel of Mark. Mark is writing this for the church at Rome that are under the boot of Nero. And there's some, there's some Christian joy in being treated like Christ was treated that you'll go through persecution, I'll take care of you, you'll have a great family, and then you'll go to spend eternity with God. Is the promise. And he, and he comes back around on a principle that he teaches over and over again in verse 31. It, it's what you, you noticed in this passage. You knew it when I read it. But many who are first, like that young man that just came up here, many who are first will be last. But if you're last, you're not seeking the things of this world, those are the ones that will be first. In other words, there is a greater, more glorious kingdom that awaits all who have put their trust and faith and their whole life in Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, in Christ, God loves us with impossible grace. His forgiveness is real. His restoration brings hope. His goodness is ours. As we close today, have you caught yourself relying on your own performance? 
You've been trying and you've heard now. Come off of that treadmill. Come rest in the grace that is in Christ. Or maybe you carry the guilt of some terrible sin. And it's a terrible sin. But you've just been told God does the impossible. He gets the camel through the eye of the needle. Nothing is impossible with God. Or you've been brought to a church and you wondered, what would it cost you? Maybe you feel alone. Rem remember that one of the great promises of Jesus is the fellowship of believers. People from all walks of life that only have one thing in common, but man, what a thing. The blood of Jesus that runs through us. Come and give your life to Jesus. This morning as we close, let me invite you to, let me invite you to close, um, close with me your eyes. Spend a moment or two in prayer, commitment. I want to spend a moment in commitment in prayer. And uh, we're going to sing one song. And that song is just an invitation. Part of our tradition is to provide an opportunity for you to respond to what you've heard. The singing, the praying, the sermon. This morning, if you'd like to talk to a pastor, as we sing, we'll invite you to come forward. We'll be down here in the front. If you want to pray with someone, you want to come and pray for somebody, we would invite you to do that. If you're not comfortable with that, you'd rather wait till after church. The pastors will be in the lobby. I'm glad to talk to you about what it means to give your life to the hope and joy and the love found in Christ. Father, thank you for your word that is good. Thank you for your spirit that heals, strengthens, binds us together. Thank you for grace that takes away our self-righteousness, points us to the righteousness in Christ. Lord, I pray you would apply that to your people now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?